This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Today on the Composer Chronicles, I'd like to welcome Alan Tyson. Alan is a composer, saxophonist, author, and educator who uses his various artistic endeavors to create and promote new music with unbridled enthusiasm. With his diverse catalog of over 60 compositions, he has had the opportunity to share his enthusiasm for music with audiences around the world, having recently premiered works at National Sawdust in Brooklyn, the New Music Gathering at the Peabody Institute at Johns Hopkins University, as well as the World Saxophone Congress in Strasbourg, France. His weekly online periodical, The Tyson Journal, captures happenings in the broader new music community and explores his creative work as both a composer and a saxophonist. Stick around until the end of Alan's interview to hear his chamber work Onde et Ombre for violin, clarinet, and piano. This is The Composer Chronicles, a storytelling podcast about music through the ages. I'm Stephen Trigar, and let me introduce you to Alan Tyson. So why don't we get started about you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you come from and how you got to where you are today? Oh my gosh. All right. Uh, well, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's a big story. Um, well, I, I got into music just by, you know, signing up for middle school band. Um, a couple of my friends were doing it. And so I said, sure, this will be a fun activity. Why not? Let's try. Um, and so I started playing saxophone in seventh grade. Um, I did not grow up in a musical household. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any artists in my family or musicians in my family, uh, both nuclear and extended. So it was kind of an odd thing where I, I came home from school one day and said, hey, mom and dad, I want to I want to join band. And they said, OK, sure. Um, so I started playing saxophone. And I was I was okay. I was always one of those middle of the the section saxophonists. Right. Um, and it's kind of interesting because one of the things that, that that held me back was that I really struggled with the idea of practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, because pretty early on in my experience, I would start practicing for 10, 15 minutes. And then just start noodling away on my instrument. Mm-hmm. So I was co- my my practice sessions were being constantly derailed mm-hmm. by 
a desire to improvise or write my own little tunes, uh, which was nice. I mean, it fostered yeah. a certain kind of creativity, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't be practicing the actual music that I was supposed to be practicing. Right. Um, and so, I mean, deep into high school, I, I still wanted to, you know, maybe pursue American history as a major or physics. Um, I was a bit of a math whiz. Um, and then finally, my junior year of high school went. You know what? Let's let's do this. I'll be I'll be a band director. Um, I went to the University of Southern Mississippi to do my undergrad in music education, and then started taking some of the education courses and decided, oh, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I I was like, wait a second, I want to do music, but I don't want to do the the, the band director route. Yeah. And so I ended up getting an undergrad in music history. Um, and then because I, I wanted to be a composer, but there was no composition program at the school and I didn't want to transfer schools. So I said, okay, I'll get a music history degree because there's no comp program. I figured this would be an excellent opportunity for me to just study a bunch of music and mm -hmm. I'll teach myself how to compose. And that's pretty much what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, after I graduated, I, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And it just so happened that Southern Miss started a brand new master's program in music theory. Hmm. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll sign on for that. Thinking kind of along the same lines, you know, right? It's like, okay, well, I was... I got really good at music theory when I was an undergrad. And it's not because I was interested in music theory. I got good at theory and analysis simply because I was teaching myself how to compose. Right. And so I would hear something and go, well, how the hell did they do that? <laughs> and so I'd run to the library and I'd study these scores and then I'd go, oh, okay, Brahms is doing X and Y and Z or Stravinsky is doing this and that's how he gets this out. Okay, fine. So I got really good at analyzing music, not because I was interested in the analysis, but it was just my path to kind of teaching myself how to compose in absence of a composition mentor or composition program. Right. So I did my master's in music theory and then all of my music theory professors were like, you'd be an idiot to not get a doctorate in music theory. I said, okay, <laughs> fine. And so I went uh, to Florida state university and got my PhD in music theory there. Um, taught for a year at uh, the Jacob school of music at Indiana university. Nice. Um, uh, right out of my doctorate, um, and then spent the past 10 years as the coordinator of uh, music theory and composition at Marceau University, which is a small liberal arts school here in North Carolina. And I just recently resigned from that position. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of giving up the academic portion of my career uh, to be a composer and performer and freelance educator and author. So that's Wonderful. a little bit about who I am and how I got here. <laughs> that's fantastic. It actually sounds very similar to my own personal story. Uh, oh, really? Go when um, when I was going getting ready to go into college, I for so much of my my development as a musician, every musician around me was also a music teacher at a school right. in the local area. I grew right. up in uh, Northeastern Pennsylvania, right around okay. the, Scra the Scranton area. And uh, so I, every time I was going out and getting gigs 
the the next person next to me was the band director at the Mid Valley High School or or the choral right. director uh, wherever and I was like okay so if I want to be a successful performer I also have to be a teacher as well and so I went into my grad pro- uh, my my undergrad program as a music education major so right i i go through the program i actually land a, a assistant band director job at my former high school and i get there and i'm like oh i don't i don't like this <laughs> <laughs> now that i'm actually doing it in practice i i don't want this uh so right. i it took me a whole extra year to kind of figure out what to do I, mm. I, I I saw everything in a different light. I was going to classes and I was like, no, that's not, you're, you're telling us that that's how it is, but I've done this in practice and it doesn't work like that. And so right. I was like, okay, I need to get out of this program because there's, I'm not going to, this is, this is no, <laughs> not good. Uh, and so I changed to music performance uh, because I thought, that it was going to be easier to go and transition into what I wanted. I actually wanted to go into music history. I ended up getting my master's in music history. So um, it was the, for, for what my university had to offer it using going into music performance was probably the easiest transition. Uh, It was also going to get me out of school on time. If I stuck with music education, I was going to be staying for an extra year and a half, uh, making my stay, (laughs) making my stay at five and a half years in undergrad. And I was not having that. So yeah. Yeah. At a certain point, you're just like, okay, give me any degree. Just get me out of here. Exactly. I, I'm surprised that I was able to do it. I completed my performance degree in a year uh both my junior and senior recitals were one was in the fall one was in the spring it was it was it was a crazy year but you know what i i finished it and i'm i'm glad that i did because that's right that's right yeah i i i don't it's education is such a is such a difficult field and the people who are music teachers really deserve a whole lot of respect because it's something that I, I couldn't do. I, so I, I give all of my, uh, (laughs) all of my respect. Well, and being an educator is only getting more and more difficult because of the amount of interference that you have to deal with as an educator is just bizarre. Um, and, and it's in, in my opinion, it's increasingly that way in higher ed too. Um, and that was, that was a huge, you know, kind of pain point for me as, as somebody who worked in higher ed for so many years, um, is the amount of time I spent not teaching, uh, the amount, let alone doing whatever kind of creative or research work I wanted to do. I, I loved the teaching part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a, a lot of people, you know, a lot of academics don't, they want to be there for the, for the creative work and the research. I wanted to do the creative work and research and I wanted to do the teaching. And I, I really drew a lot of energy from the teaching and I still want to teach. I just can't really stomach doing it in the university setting anymore. Um, because I think there was a semester just pretty recently where I was on more committees 
than the number of courses I was teaching. Wow. And I just kind of went, you know what? I'm I'm out of here. You yeah. know, where one of these committees, I was literally spending more hours doing per week doing committee work for that than I was doing prepping and grading for one of my my theory courses. And I just got to the point where I was just like, you know what? Y'all can have it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I still want to teach and I'm I'm, you know, and I have a really great private studio. Oh good. Um, that, you know, of lessons that I teach. Uh, either through Zoom or you know in person as as pandemic starts to cross our fingers come to a close. So right. um, yeah, I love teaching. I just I, I I couldn't quite stomach doing it in higher ed. And you know maybe I'll change my perspective about that in a few years yeah. and try to re-enter the 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 academic market. But uh, for right now, I just kind of went. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna. I'm going to spend a few years off. This past year was my 17th year of collegiate teaching. Oh, wow. Um, and I went, okay, that's that's almost two decades. That's a good run. Time for yeah. me to bounce for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Well, congratulations on uh, knowing where you want to head and, and having the resources to be able to do so. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've, I didn't make this decision lightly, but at the yeah. at the same time, I you know I don't I'm not a trust fund kid. I don't have a uh, <laughs> uh, I don't I don't have uh, any kind of like independent wealth or anything like that. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm hitting the ground running here by just <laughs> writing an absolute ton of music, and I've I've secured some com some really great commissions over the next eighteen months. And oh, so wonderful! I'm really, I'm really looking forward to this this process. Is it scary? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I don't know. I think it's scarier to uh, be on your deathbed one day having not tried. Um, oh, I think that's way scarier. So, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it is. Yeah. It's very scary to to think like, oh, I'm I'm quitting my job with nothing nothing to do and uh i think that that you have right. an idea as to as to where you want to go is is all is all the better but uh no matter no matter how yeah, exactly. how money plays into it it's it's always great to have the 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 knowledge that what you're doing is something that you're you're passionate about passionate about and uh right yeah exactly yeah yeah i mean make a plan stick to it and and do the darn thing right yeah. um you know I, it's funny because you know a lot of people say oh well you know you have a stable job and my my approach to it has always been there's no such thing as a stable job right. there's no such thing as a guaranteed job anywhere ever it's like yeah you're tenured and i'm like and yeah that's that's still no guarantee let me show you the statistics about what's going to happen to american higher education over the course of the next decade right um so, you know, I, I, I find it to be personally an empowering thing to believe that there's no such thing as a stable job. Yeah. Um, it allows, it allows a, a bit of flexibility and freedom. Yeah. Um, so, and yes, it's scary. Yeah. There, there are times I wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh my God, health insurance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's that, that stuff happens, but um, as I said, I think it's way scarier to one day slip back to the collective unconscious, uh, and, and having not tried. Yeah, exactly. Um, and let this whole past year be a, uh, a testament to what you are, are saying right now, because 
nobody knows. I mean, you think that you have the most stable job and then all of a sudden something like this comes around and no longer have that job. And nothing, nothing is, is set in stone. So just oh, exactly right. Yeah. Pursue Pursue anything that you, you may want. Uh, and if you work hard enough, then you'll get what you want. It, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes you, you go through really beautiful moments where, you know, life upsets your apple cart and you can see that <laughs> as an opportunity. I mean, uh, getting a, a little personal, um, it, during the pandemic, I uh, got a got a divorce, sold my mm. house, and quit my academic job. And I was like, wow. "All right, well, let's do it." <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and again, you could you could see that as as all being incredibly challenging, um, and it it was, it is. Uh, but at the same time, it can it can also be um, a, a set of beautiful opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, thankfully my uh, ex-wife and I got along enough that it wasn't, uh, you know, a, a, an acrimonious separation. Good. Um, and, and, you know, we met. So we managed to sell our house. I think it was like the second month of lockdown. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so you can imagine how much fun that was. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, so you know, we were still getting kind of conflicting information about what might be safe and what not, might not be safe. Right. And meanwhile, we're like, you know, you have to show the house or you have to bring people into your house. And so like we had to, we had to clean our house and everything like that, but also have all of these safety precautions in place. Wow. And it was, it was wild. It was absolutely <laughs> wild. And of course, like, we're in pandemic, we're in lockdown, we're living in the same place, but we're going through a divorce. Yeah. Um, and I'm like making plans to quit my academic job. And wow. yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. But you know, as I said, you can you can take those as opportunities to soul search and kind of figure out what what path you want to be walking. Um, or you could just you know, kind of wave the white flag and surrender. And I am, <laughs> I'm not a, a kind of person who, who likes to fly the white flag. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been fun, man. It's a lot yeah. of, again, <laughs> good opportunities. Let's, let's roll with it. So. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of great opportunities, uh, you, you do a lot. I've, yes. since yeah. I've been, since I've been following you on social media, I think I, I, I you have, you regularly perform, you have yes. a, journal if yes if I'm, journal. right yeah, yeah uh why don't you tell us a little bit about let's start with your performance career sure well i mean i i don't have any degrees in saxophone performance and one of the reasons for that is during my undergrad i actually developed really severe performance anxiety mm. um i mean to the point that you know by by my senior year my hands would visibly shake, mm. you know, when I was on stage by myself as a solo performer. I didn't have a problem with ensembles. I mean, that was a, a little bit of a problem, but any kind of solo or exposed chamber playing really uh, kind of freaked me out. Right. And so by about halfway through my master's, I kind of put my saxophone in my case and I was like, I, I think I'm done with this. I, you know, I don't, I don't think that's going to be a part of my career. Um, and then when I got the job here at Mars Hill, um, again, you know, it's a, it's a really small school. So they hired me to be the theory comp and tech guy. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also 
took over the saxophone studio after my my first year here you know all the few kids that were that were in this in the studio and so i i decided okay i i can't in good conscience be teaching saxophone lessons without being able to demonstrate some of these things so right. it was kind of one of those all right let me get my horn out of my case and start relearning and it was interesting because enough time had passed that i felt like i was relearning how to play the instrument mm. and i feel like i needed that reboot um and so i i spent a couple years doing that and then slowly kind of word got around and they were like hey could you you know could you do this big band gig and i was like yeah sure hey do you want to do this musical theater gig yeah sure <laughs> and then my best friend uh who lives in new orleans said hey i'm doing this recital and i would love to do this duo piece with you on the on the recital and so i said okay sure and so it's a little bit light by little bit i kind of got back into performing and one of the things that got me into performing was being an advocate to fellow composers and saying mm -hmm. hey you should really write for the saxophone yeah and then i started doing the stupid thing of saying hey if you write for the saxophone i'll play it <laughs> and so I got back into in, into performing simply to be an advocate for this instrument to fellow composers. Right. Um, and then I, I started doing that. And it's the old saying, you know, careful what you pretend to be because you end up being it. Um, and and little bit by little bit, I kind of shed my performance anxiety. I found a, a healthier relationship with performing on my instrument. And so last January, I gave my New York recital debut wow. um at the age of 38 <laughs> and said okay let's let's do this and i gave a, a huge recital of contemporary music um Wonderful. in manhattan and had a great time it was part of this anthology project that i that i i curated um and so so yeah um my most of my performance uh, career now uh, is funneled into my duo, uh, Megan Enan and Alan Tyson present. We just shorted to mm -hmm. MIATP. We're uh, an avant pop, like we're, we're we're like an avant pop contemporary classical band. Wow! Um, and so <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do we do a lot of great stuff. My my partner uh, Megan Enan is just an incredible singer. Mm -hmm. um and so we we were a, a voice sax band and just have a great time so that's that's kind of my 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 performance focus and then as a writer i started um a weekly online periodical called the tyson journal uh this past october and um uh online periodical is just a newer fancier way of saying blog yeah. um <laughs> and uh so I, I run it through my website and um, I use it as an opportunity to talk about all kinds of things, uh, new music related. And um, I have I have issues that are exploring like listening lists and I do record reviews um, and I write uh, longer form essays on a variety of topics. Uh, the very first issue I think was my top 10 tips for composing for band. Oh, and then I had one on performance anxiety, and then I did an interview with uh, Devon Russell Gray, and I've done record reviews. I, I or I, I reviewed uh, David Byrne's uh, American Utopia with Spike Lee's film version of it came out. So I kind of take every week as an opportunity to just explore something else that's on my musical horizons, and then right. um, 
and then talk about that. So yeah, I, and then I, I, of course I'm active as a composer and I teach a private studio and I had a full-time job, a university job until very recently. So yeah, I stay busy, my man. Oh, good. <laughs> I stay really busy. I love it. Uh, I'm sure I, I keep myself pretty busy as well. I, nice. Yeah. I, yeah. This, I, I started this podcast back in, uh, April. Yeah. April last okay. year. I, and it's blown up, right? It has. It's I, great. I don't know. You know what? I, I, I have a feeling that things really started and it was actually something that you had responded to. Um, the bowl, the ball really started to roll when, uh, JM Garrity posted something on, on Twitter yeah. saying, I loved being guest on this podcast. How do I become one again? And, that that was one of the the largest sparks that I had, and right. it got I got people like yourself. Um, I've got several other composers that I have coming up in the near future uh, to to be guests on the show, and that's awesome. I, I yeah, and even more recently, I, I still I still don't know uh, how uh, how certain things get the attention on social media. For example, a few. Um, I think it was somewhere last week. I just post the pose the question on Twitter of, do we consider songwriters to be composers as well? Yeah, and I remember th that. That was another thing where I'm like, why why did that get attention and something else? Because you not. were asking because you were asking for people's opinions about stuff. End <laughs> of story. Look, look. Social media is a hellscape that I love and hate, and and I'm I'm. I'm on social media a lot. I'm a big advocate for social media as mm -hmm. part of, you know, once, uh, you know, professional uh, activities. Yeah. Uh, but it can also be just plain infuriating. I, um, so, yeah. so yeah, no, if you're on Twitter and you want to tweet to blow up, just like ask for, for unsolicited opinions about stuff and your <laughs> mentions will just blow up. So like the two easy ways to get attention for anything on Twitter um, complain about something or ask for people's unsolicited opinion. Uh, well, I guess it wouldn't be unsolicited if you asked for it. Yeah. So solicit opinions is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I could go on Twitter and be like, Hey, what's your favorite blank and brrr, mentions forever or get on Twitter and be like, Hey, you know, what really sucks is blah, blah, blah brrr, mentions blow up. Yeah. If I'm like, Hey, I just finished a piece and I'm going to go on a pleasant walk today. Like two likes, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, that's part of the toxicity of that, that place. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I actually just took Twitter off of my phone a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Um, I've been on Twitter for a decade and a couple of weeks ago, I was just like, you know what? I, I just, I, I'm going to log on like once a day through <laughs> my computer and I kind of feel like I need to step away from that place for a bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm yeah. sure I'll be back. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, there have, there have definitely been times where I've been a Twitter addict, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of weird though. I, yeah, I, I, I have a love hate relationship with that particular social media platform. Yeah. When those types of things happen, I was seeing my numbers on my podcast just jump dramatically and right. in even uh, people would stick around and that's great stuff to ha that happens. And I think my most recent episode was uh, an episode on ancient composers. And for some reason, that particular episode did extremely well. That's uh, awesome, man. I think I had 40, 40 downloads on my first day, which 
was the highest. The highest number cool. before that was thirty-two. All right, uh, that's a bump. That's a. It was a big bump, and it was it was the week after that <laughs> posing yeah, yeah. the songwriter question. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, well, that's what I'm saying. Just like get on Twitter and once a day, just ask, like solicit opinions. Or one of my favorite things to do is just like throw out one of your opinions and then at the end be like, do you agree? Yeah. And then what, like, all of a sudden you have like 79 mentions and you're like, oh my gosh, what is wow. going on here? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. The worst thing you can do on Twitter is be positive and share something constructive. Worst, worst idea. Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it is, it is hilarious. Like, like I'm sure if I were to go back and look at at all of my tweets, the ones with the least engagement, I think the Twitter algorithm is specifically not interested in anything positive and constructive. Yeah. It's just like like unless you're Lin Manuel Miranda, nobody cares. Yeah, it's like get your positivity out of here. We want to go back to complaining about stuff. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm perhaps being a bit cynical about Twitter right now. Can you <laughs> okay. tell? Uh, it's okay. Um, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, we all I'm, have I'm those so feelings. Happy. Yeah. And it comes and goes. A couple of years ago, I went through the same thing where I was just like, I, I was like going to re remove my Twitter account, like period. Wow. Um, and of course I didn't. And, you know, <laughs> a year after that, I'm like tweeting 40 times a day. So like, <laughs> ask me again in six months and I'll be like, oh my God, I was just on Twitter four seconds ago. I was on Twitter in the middle of this conversation. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hey there, it's me, your host, Steven. Aside from being a host of this podcast, I am the founder of Alexandrian Media, a growing production company based in Philadelphia that aims to make art and culture accessible to those in our modern era. I'm here today to tell you about an incredible opportunity. Alexandrian Media is a proud partner of Run the Town, a virtual race hosted by Roy Belzer Fitness. If you're someone who is normally quite active, but haven't been able to get out there and run races or done any fitness related activities or sports, then this is a perfect opportunity for you. Run the Town is a virtual race that could be done anywhere in the world. This fundraiser will aid in bolstering the Roy Belzer Fitness Scholarship Program, benefiting all those that are looking to pursue their fitness journey to feel better and to live a healthier lifestyle, but are financially incapable of getting started. If you're a listener to any of my podcasts, you'll know that I've been a student of Roy's for just about a year now, and I've been a huge supporter of his class. Roy Fitness has been the best support system I've needed to work on my health. And that's why I'm here to tell you that listeners of this podcast can sign up to run the town for 10% off your choice of three races, a 5k walk slash run, a 10k walk slash run, or a half marathon race. And yes, I did say walk slash run because you do not have to run this race. 
Join me and let together help Roy Bezzer Fitness hit their goal of 1,000 racers across the U.S. and give people looking to jumpstart their health and fitness journeys the chance to get personal training. Click on the link in the show notes to sign up right now. I hope to see you there. What would a world without music be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car And then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiance. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and get your first 30 days for free. You can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads. So again, go to getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and start listening on Amazon Music Unlimited today. hindered your career as a composer oh i i think it's enhanced it more than i can begin to say i mean i've secured significant commissions because of social media oh wow um i found my duo partner because of social media um and i so i that's that's part of the love-hate relationship that i was i was talking about with twitter mm-hmm. um that on one hand, I find it to be an absolutely infuriating, maddening place uh, <laughs> with an algorithm that prompts you to be a butthead. Um, yeah. But at the same time, again, I've gotten performances of older pieces because of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I've I found my duo partner. Right. Um, you know, five years ago via, via social media. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we didn't know each other at all. And we, we crossed paths on social media and now we're in a band together. That's, you know, over four years old. Um, wow. and so, uh, I mean, I, one of the commissions that I'm working on this year, um, is a, uh, a commission 
uh, for trumpet and piano. That was the result of me just like posting one of my band pieces on Facebook one day. Wonderful. Uh, just out of nowhere. I mean, it was an older piece of mine. I was like, oh, you know, I have this recording on YouTube of this. Why not just throw it out there? And within 24 hours, the person who commissioned it said, hey, I, I saw this on Facebook and, and I was just thinking about commissioning someone for a piece that was kind of along these lines. Would you be interested? And I was like, oh, yeah, I am. Let's go. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Like, again, uh, commissions and finding my duo partner and getting performance, newer performances of some of my older pieces. Uh, uh, other performance partners of mine have have all occurred through social media uh, because I mean I've been tucked away at a at a really small private liberal arts school for the past decade. Yeah, in the mountains of North Carolina, this <laughs> this isn't exactly like Chicago or Brooklyn over here, you know, in terms of in terms of new music. Right, and so so much of how I've had to construct my career has been based on interactions uh through social media and so you can use it well you can use it to your advantage you can be positive you don't have to buckle to the algorithm and chase the likes by being a, a you know a toxic personality which i have to confess that's that's one of the biggest changes that i've experienced in my own career over the course of the past 10 years on social media is that i knew i had to be on social media to help promote myself and put myself out there as a composer and and performer in the new music world. But I also went through a really long period where I got suckered into, oh, in order to attract attention, I have to get a lot of likes and retweets. Mm -hmm. And the algorithm was encouraging me to get those likes and retweets uh, by being frankly obnoxious. Mm -hmm. um, and and one day I was just like, you know, I don't like who I am online and who I am in person are not exactly matching. Right. And I became aware of that and went, okay, you would never say this to someone's face. You yeah. would never just walk around offering unsolicited opinions to people face to face. Why the hell do you do it on Twitter? Right. And so I kind of had to do like a hard soul search and be like, you know what, I'm going to I'm not saying I'm perfect about it. I still, you know, offer my, I offer the occasional like jerky, you know, spicy take on Twitter <laughs> or something. But um, I just, I, I, I feel like I'm a little more careful hmm. about monitoring how I behave. You know, you just have to be careful to be your, you, I, I feel like you have to work three times as hard to be your best self yeah. <laughs> on social media. That right? is so true. You know, because you can, if you're, if you're in a room, if, if you're in a cocktail party and you kind of like say something that's a, a bit jerky about a fellow composer or something like that, you know, you might, a couple of people might hear it and they might laugh about it. And by the end of the night, they've forgotten about it. And the words right. disappear to the ether. If you tweet about it, even in a DM, it's like, nope, that's permanent now. Yeah. Six years from now, somebody could retweet that and you're going to feel like shit. Yeah. Uh, and I know because that's happened to me <laughs> where I talked shit about a composer like eight or nine years ago. I, I kind of sent a mean tweet about him. And this was a long time before I knew them. It was a long time before I got to their, know their music better. 
And I was mortified one day, like six years after I tweeted that, that somebody like out of the blue retweeted it. And I saw it and went, oh, oh, no. And I just like my heart dropped into my stomach. I felt like the biggest piece of shit. I could not delete that tweet soon enough. And I just it was a deeply embarrassing moment for me. Yeah. And that composer didn't see it, but still, and that, yeah. made, that just made me feel so much like junk. And and that was kind of a wake up call for me, where it was just like, be careful what you say. Yeah, um, you know, the internet is forever, as the saying goes. So mm-hmm. I I love I love social media. I think it's integral to to developing one's career in the twenty first century. Um, you just have to again work three times as hard to be your best possible self yeah that's very very true (laughs) i i've been struggling with that myself i i usually find myself typing something out and then erasing it Mm -hmm. uh right before right before i hit the send button i yep i'm also one of those people that refrain from any kind of confrontation whatsoever that will serve you well Uh, yeah (laughs) But no, that's one of the reasons why I started the Tyson Journal back in October is I wanted a way to write positively about the world of new music every single week. And what was funny is I suspected it was going to have this effect. And indeed it did, where as soon as I started writing the Tyson Journal every week, my time on especially Twitter plummeted. Mm. And I think it's because there was a part of me that's like, oh, I want to write about new music. I want to communicate about the world of of, of music with people. And I think I was I was using Twitter just kind of like this obsessive way of kind of getting some of these ideas out instead of being like, whoa, wait a second, write something on your website that's more permanent where you are able to convey nuanced ideas in a longer format um, and not immediately feel like you're entering some sort of fray. Um, My training, my development as a composer was radically different. Like I, the first things that I wrote in my life, the first things I composed in my life were, were, you know, heads for my high school jazz band. They were blues tunes. They were funk tunes. And that I wrote a string quartet that was serial and that like, so, but I didn't see any of these as being inherently better or worse. It was just stuff I was making. Right. And so I don't get threatened when Kendrick Lamar wins the Pulitzer <laughs> because hell yes, he should have won the Pulitzer yeah. because damn rules yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that album fucking rules yeah and i was just like screaming excited that kendrick won that and people were like oh but does he really need the notoriety does he really need the attention i'm like one yes he does two hip-hop does three shut the fuck up because like (laughs) you know i feel really passionately about this i was like so insanely overdue yeah that album is just look if i ever create anything as an umbrella term composer mm-hmm. that is m- as mind blowing and nuanced and emotionally effective as the album. Damn great. I'll hang up my spurs. Cause like, yeah, that, that album rules. Yeah. And you know, 
this is coming from a guy who literally wrote a, a music theory dissertation on Elliot Carter. It's okay, y'all. It's okay. <laughs> So let's talk about your music, the music that you compose. Um, So those who are listening to this podcast are going to be listening to your piece. uh, Give me one second. uh, On. uh, Om. Ah, yes. Okay. You, you, I, I was, I was like, okay. I can't, You're like I can't, French title. Damn it. Yeah. Uh, no, no, that's okay. I was, I was trying to remember. I was like, okay. I remember two, piece, two okay. O's and yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of that piece and, and, and how you composed it? And sure. uh, yeah, well, let's, let's go there. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. Cause that was, um, I, I received a commission from the Argo Trio, uh, which is clarinet, violin, piano. Uh, this was back in 2013. And um, I had been composing for, you know, over a decade by the time 20, around 2010. And in, you know, between 2010 and 2013, I mean, I was, I had just gotten the job at, at Mars Hill and I, I was still composing, but kind of sporadically and I was, tr- I was starting to figure out ways of communicating what I wanted to communicate because as I said, I was like, I, I play saxophone. And so there's, there's a part of me that, that loves jazz and funk and hip hop and fusion and improvisational music, but I was also, and have been into contemporary classical music. And so a lot of my composing in the first decade plus of my career was saying, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna compose a jazz chart now. Okay, now I'm gonna compose this contemporary classical work for solo piano. Okay. So I was kind of like cycling through all of these different styles and approaches to making music mm-hmm. w- based on whatever project I was doing. Um but around 2013, 2014, I had some I had some really great commissions on my plate. And I don't know why, but something finally clicked after like 15 years of composing where I was like, oh, wait a second. What if I were to start combining these various approaches to making music? What if I put more aleatoric aspects or improvisational aspects into my contemporary classical music? What if mm-hmm. what if I used, you know, way funkier, denser harmonies when I wrote jazz charts what if i what if i i started to combine these different wheels of this venn diagram right um and so this piece fell into this this period where i think it was between july of 2013 and may of 2014 so we're talking 10 months i composed um 75 minutes worth of music wow and so, yeah, it was like an 11 minute piece for band that was a commission, um, a 15 minute long trombone quintet, which was a commission, this trio, which was a commission, which is about 10 or 11 minutes long, a 16 minute long solo alto saxophone piece that was a commission, and then a 25 minute long woodwind quintet, which was wow. a commission. So I had these like, oh, and then I also wrote two jazz charts in that time that I recorded with an avant punk jazz band that i was playing in at the time so like and then recorded one of those tunes on an album so Mm -hmm. like that was all within the span of 10 months like this light bulb just came on and was like oh shit i've been making it hard on myself like (laughs) why 
why have I not been combining all of these things all along? Right. Um, and so this piece was, was, you know, definitely work that falls mo way more to the contemporary classical music camp. Uh, but also one where I felt way freer about exploring ideas of um, aleatoric combinations where I'm saying, okay, well, here's what I want the violin to do. Here's what I want the clarinet to do. They don't have to be temporarily coordinated. Right. And then the piano will start at a certain time and the pianist has a solo and that doesn't necessarily need bar lines or need to be temporarily coordinated with what the other two instruments are doing. And then other moments that are absolutely temporarily coordinated. So what I was trying to explore in this particular piece were different areas of the spectrum between being completely temporally coordinated by the composer and moments that are completely temporally not coordinated. Um, right. And then also zones that are somewhere in between. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love this piece. It got a really great studio recording uh, by the Argo trio who commissioned it. And um, yeah, it was, it was really fascinating to write this piece at the same time as I was writing to like, you know, kind of uh, avant jazz charts. Uh, at the same time, I was writing a woodwind quintet that was five movements based on paintings that was, wow. you know, kind of a variety of styles. And so I just kind of leaned into the thing that I wanted to do most, which was en enjoy exploring the idea of style. So it's kind of interesting that I chose this particular piece for this podcast uh, because it's not reflective of the vast majority of the music I write, mm. but was, was reflective of this kind of light bulb moment in my career where like, right. it took me 15 years of writing music before like the light bulb came on. And right. I was like, Oh, wait a second. I've been, I've been way too uptight about this. Um, <laughs> you know, where I'm just like, Oh no, no, no. I, I really want to do this, but I can't do this in a jazz chart or yeah. like, Oh, I I really want to do this, but I can't add a hip hop beat to a contemporary classical piece. I can't do that. And now right. I'm just like, oh, hell yeah, I can. Absolutely. You, know? <laughs> you can do whatever like, you uh, want. What Exactly. Like one of the pieces that, um, uh, that I have on my horizon uh, next, next calendar year is, I can't say too much about it now, but it's a piano concerto. Okay. Um, and there will be a part in the orchestra for a Hammond B3 organ and electric bass. Wonderful. Because I'm like, and and like the the piano concerto concerto will start with like an up tempo bop solo. That's oh, like yeah. the opening cadenza. <laughs> and then that's gonna go into like I it, I was like, what if I wrote a piano concerto and made it like an early 90s like experimental hip hop mixtape? Oh my gosh, it's um, gonna be so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, and and the performers again. I can't I can't reveal information oh, no, about that, but the performers are just sick. The performers are absolutely killer, and I'm like, oh, I know what I'm doing at this project. Oh um, yeah. And so like it's I'm I'm having a blast with all of these different. Well, and again, having not grown up in a musical family, I I didn't have the burden of piano lessons, right? Mm. I wasn't like, okay, well, you're gonna learn to play Mozart Bach when you're little. And right. I didn't have somebody, you know, constantly being like, oh, this is a good kind of music and this is a not good kind of music. I just kind of grew up with a ton of music around. Right. So, you know, in the in the 90s, in my formative like teen years throughout like middle school and high school and stuff like that, 
I was listening to Dr. Dre. I was listening to Stevie Wonder. I was listening to Dave Matthews Band. I was listening to Stravinsky. I was listening to Schoenberg. I was listening to Mahler. I was listening to Herbie Hancock. And yeah. so when I started, you know, my path as a composer, I was like, damn, I don't want to choose between all this. I really love, I was listening to musical theater. I was like, like, seriously, there was a time in early high school where like back in the day where I had like a CD player with six CDs, right. That you could put in. And there was a time where like the six CDs that I had in there that were just in constant rotation were like Headhunters, Herbie Hancock, um, the cast album of Les Mis, <laughs> uh, Dre Chronic, Dave Matthews Band, Crash, Holst the Planets, and Stravinsky <laughs> Rite of Spring. Wow. <laughs> that was like, that was my rotation. Those six albums were just like nonstop. So like I was going, I was in my bedroom, like belting out one day more from Les Mis. And then it would like cycle to, you know, a track from the chronic. Um, wow. And so that was like, and my mom and dad were just like, Hey, whatever the kid likes music, let him go. And so that's, that was my sound world. And so like, of course, when I, went to band that this gets back to one of the things that we were talking about earlier on in this conversation, I would go to band and they'd be like, okay, we'll practice this band piece. And I would do it for 10 min minutes. I'd be like, fuck this. I want to be making up my own stuff. This doesn't reflect yeah. what it is I'm hearing <laughs> in my head and in my, in my world. Right. And so I was that guy that like showed up to high school jazz band every day with stuff sketched out. And I was like, what would this sound like? Mm -hmm. And my trumpet playing buddy would be like, first of all, that's way too high. You're a psychopath. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. You can't play, you know, Fs and Gs above the staff constantly. And he was like, no, stop it. Um, and so like my <laughs> earliest training as a composer were just my friends being like, do this, don't do that. Hey, this kind of works. This is really stupid. Please don't hurt me. Um, and that's just kind of how I learned to compose. Um, and again, yeah. it was kind of cool not having... On one hand, it slowed me down and it was frustrating to not be in a composition program for undergrad or my master's degree or doctoral degree. Not having a composition teacher was frustrating and slowed me down a lot. But at the same time, in the long run, it was really cool that I didn't have anybody along the way to be like, hey, I see you're combining this and this. I think that's a bad idea. Quit doing that. Mm. So in a way for as independently do it yourself minded as I am, that was kind of the best path for me. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of the times the universe gives you exactly the path that's right for you. Right. And I, I wonder, I wonder if I had had different composition teachers, if I would have butted heads with them and, and, gotten way more uptight about what what you can or or cannot or should or should not do in music um or maybe not maybe i would have had killer composition teachers and they would have they would have been like do your thing al let's go and by the way don't do this when you orchestrate because yeah you know instead i had to learn that shit the hard way and you know write a band piece and hear get played and be like oh man that sucks yeah uh, or write a choral piece and sit there and just horrifically embarrassed by the fact that it sounds like total trash and i'm like oh i gotta own that one 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a great way. I mean, I know that several of composers that I have talked to who have gone through the academic portion of composition, there are teachers who are like, no, you can't do this. I mean, you, you be this one specific way. You got to emulate this right. composer. You got to emulate this composer or don't rely too heavily on a particular instrument or it's, and a lot of them come out of that saying, whatever, I'm going to write whatever I want. <laughs> I don't care what my yes. teacher said. Uh, yeah, then, exactly. But, the, but then they pay hell. They spend years like fighting their own souls because as much as they want to rebel against their teachers, their teacher's voice are st is still, still like in still their firmly head. inside their head. Yeah. And, and yeah, I see that all the time on social media, like composers who are in their late twenties or into their thirties or even their forties who are like, who, who feel bifurcated, right? Where there's a part of them that's like, fuck my teacher, I'm gonna do whatever I want. And then the next day on Twitter, they're like, oh my God, I'm so stuck and writing music as torture. And I, <laughs> I, I don't know, I've, I've had very, very, very few moments in the past 20 plus years of composing where I felt like composing was hard. Mm. You know what I mean? It's work, hell yeah, it's work. You know, yeah. but it's not like this, this soul crushing, like, oh God, I guess I got to go beat my head until like notes come out. And I'm like, damn, <laughs> man, like chill out, go for a walk, <laughs> you know, just go for a like, walk, loosen up a little bit. Yeah. And part of it is masterpiece syndrome, you know, and that's, that's kind of reinforced by how a lot of composition pedagogy happens mm -hmm. um, where it's like. You know, I went to school with with cats who would write a piece a semester, and I'm like, you know, that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself to only what you know. And I think it comes from a good place where it's like, oh, you're training to be a composer. I don't want to pressure you to have to write a ton of music, but at the same time, like that that's just going to make you super uptight. You've got to go out there and just you've got to fall on your face. The first. I tell my students this all the time. The first 50 pieces you write are going to suck. Yeah. So just write 50 pieces. Like, stop worrying about it being good. Just write it. You right. know? And so, like, because there are a ton of pieces in my catalog from the first, like, five, ten years that I was writing where I wrote way more than what my list of works reflects, but I ended up pulling them because those pieces suck. Like. Yeah. And I have a couple of early victories where I'm like, oh, okay, I guess if somebody wants to play that, fine. You yeah. know, but those are, those are rare for every piece in my first 10 years of writing that I still keep in my catalog. There are like seven that I've pulled, you know, <laughs> or didn't even like truly properly finish, but like, you've right. just got to do the thing, you know, mm -hmm. it's like the way to, the way to overcome performance anxiety is to not perform. Right. right is not right. to not perform you you just perform you just like exactly. do it over and over and over and over and you get used to the panic you know yeah. it's like you don't you never get over the anxiety you just learn how to manage, manage it, it. Yes. Um, and i think the same thing is is true with composing it never look we're creating something from nothing right that never gets like quote easier but right. it doesn't it also doesn't have to be hard right um you just get used to the panic of creating <laughs> something from nothing. Right. And you, you embrace that panic. You embrace that joy of like, you can, you can go, Oh my God, I can do anything I want. That can either be terrifying or liberating. And right. it's all a question of perspective. Right. You know, exactly. 
So, yeah, that's it's such a great way to look at it. I uh, I had to go through a very similar thing when I was a performance major and having to learn yeah. that I'm, the the butterflies in my stomach are not going to go away. So how do I use them to my advantage or how do I exactly just, how do I learn to just deal with the fact that every time I get up in front of somebody and put my trumpet to my face that they're going to be there. Uh, and right, yeah, right. I, there was a book that I read when I was in my undergrad. I can't remember the name of the book, but uh, I think one of the easiest thing, one of the best things that I read out of that book was when you are performing, if you are experiencing any kind of uh, emotion or a specific uh, att like attack, I think is the word that they use on your body, then all you have to say to yourself is, this is a part of me, this is what is happening, and I can't do anything about it. And then you just, you yeah. just move on and uh, yeah, you just got to deal with it. And the same thing goes for anything that you do, composing, performing, whatever. You just got to go through with it. And the more and more you do it, the more and more you'll get used to it. It might not get a, go yeah. away, but it'll you'll get used to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's the thing too, is that like professional athletes, they never stop feeling that. Right. You know, it's a part of what they like. It, nope. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be Derek Jeter. When you take the field in a game of the World Series, right. you're going to have butterflies. And imagine if Derek Jeter were like, oh, I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong with me because I still get butterflies. It's like, no, Derek Jeter is Derek Jeter because he turns those butterflies into Ws. Right. 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 Um, and, and so, like, my advice to composers would be, like, lean into those butterflies, and you're only going to be able to lean into it the more music you write. Right. And a lot of your first pieces are going to suck, and that's okay. <laughs> you're, there's that, you know, that great Ira Glass quote where he talks about the distance between your taste and what you're able to create mm -hmm. when you start. And, again, I think, I think we regard that gap as something that is uh, an evil or something. And I'm like, no, it just is what it is. It's a gap. Yeah. And you're only going to fill that gap by writing a ton of pieces. And so that's like, well, I guess I'm going to write one piece a semester. And then it's like, eh. <laughs> and then by the time they graduate, even with a graduate degree, instead of like being here, they're like halfway. Halfway. Yeah. And then of course they're like, I have this degree and I'm still frustrated because I still feel like there's this gap. Right. And when I ostensibly should be a professional. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, some of the to me, some of the most relaxed composers that I've ever met who are in the zone have simply written a lot of music. Yeah. Um, and just like some of the best performers I've ever known are just people who have performed a ton, yeah. you know, where it wasn't like, ah, yes, let me study how to write a, or how, how to play a killer funk solo. No, you hear these cats is like, yeah, I gigged every single night of my entire life for like eight years. Yeah. I got good at it, you know? Right. Um, and I think composers could, could learn a lot by doing yeah. that, you know, absolutely write the stuff. Great, great advice. <laughs> well, thank right, you man. 
so much for all of that input. Uh, where can Absolutely. people find you, or where do you ha do you have any plugs that you would like to provide? Oh, hell yeah. I'm easy to find on social media. Um, my website is uh, my online home. Uh, I, I know a lot of performers kind of like, uh, or, or composers kind of struggle to, uh, you know, keep up their website. Um, I love my website. I'm there all the time. I'm, I'm constantly updating it. Um, you know, at least once a week, there's something new on my website and I go in and I, I dust it up and make sure everything is up to date. So alantyson.com. Uh, go there. And then my band, MIATP.com. Um, go there, check, check us out, check me out. I'd love to hear from you. Um, I, I really love responding to people who send me DMs through any of my social media. I'm pretty easy to find on Insta, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, uh, my response time on Twitter might be a little sore these days. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty darn easy to find online. I've, and, you know, my website's been active for almost a decade now. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty Googleable dude. And when your name is Alan Tyson, spelled T-H-E-I-S-E-N, there's not a lot of competition uh, out in Google land. Right. You, if you Google me, you're going to find a bunch of shit by me. Like, and, and, you know, it's, I'm... I am I'm I'm blessed to have a name that is really not common. I think last time I checked there were like eight in the entire United States spelled spelled my way and uh there's none of them are musicians. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty easy to find. I'm pretty easy to find. Absolutely. And to make it a little bit easier, anybody who is listening to the podcast or watching, all the links will be wherever you need Drop to find them. Drop them links, baby. Yeah. That's right, Steven. <laughs> well, thank you again so hey. much. Been, it's been wonderful. No, thank you, you, man. I'm I am so glad that this podcast is blowing up. May it continue to blow thank up you. even more. This is really cool, Stephen. Great project, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And now, please enjoy "Onde et Ombre" for violin, clarinet, and piano by Alan Tyson.
This episode of The Composer Chronicles was edited by me, Stephen Chagar, with theme music written by Daryl Banner. Find Alan on social media and listen to more of his music via the links found in the show notes. The recording of Onde et Ombre was graciously supplied to the podcast by Alan Tyson, and if you would like to listen to it again, click on the link in the show notes where you can also download copies of the score free of charge for both the original instrumentation or its alternate instrumentations. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you can leave a rating and a review. Join our community of music lovers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cron Podcast on all three platforms. Here, you can engage with our incredible community of music professionals and enthusiasts while staying up to date with news about our past guests. For more information about this podcast and to learn more about the featured guests on the show, visit alexandrianmedia.org slash The Composer Chronicles. Thank you for listening. I'll see you again next time. Alexandrian Media, art and culture for the modern era. Hi, listener. Hello. I'm Brian Edwards. And I'm Stephen Trigar. And we're the hosts of Cultured But Not Really, Unqualified Lessons in History and Pop Culture, a new show on the Alexandria Media Podcast Network. We're two hosts who think that we're pretty cultured. But in ways the other one isn't. In this show, each week we research a topic we find fascinating. And share it with each other, all while educating ourselves and, of course, you. Join us every episode to get cultured on topics like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Vincent van Gogh, Imogen Heap, Cookies, and many more. So tune in every other Tuesday for our new show, Cultured But Not Really, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm already feeling a little bit cultured. Me too.